0: Maggie Rogers has never been one to mince words. Aside from her powerhouse voice, one of Maggie's superpowers is her ability to write pop songs fueled by radical emotional transparency. And while it's thrilling when an artist bears their soul, that level of constant vulnerability can be unsustainable. In 2019, after releasing her Grammy-nominated debut Heard It in a Past Life and then touring the album relentlessly, Maggie was desperately in need of time away from the spotlight. Just before the pandemic, she retreated to her parents' home in coastal Maine. There, she began writing and recording her follow-up album, Surrender. Maggie also started to think deeply about her role as a pop star and the relationship between herself and her audience. In 2021, she enrolled in a master's program of religion and public life at Harvard Divinity School. There, her studies focused on the spirituality of public gatherings and the ethics of power in pop culture. On today's episode, producer Leah Rose talks to Maggie Rogers about how comforting it was for her to become a student again. Maggie also recalls the time she took motorcycle lessons to rechannel the massive amounts of adrenaline she experienced on her first tour. And we'll hear the song from Maggie's new album that she says is the perfect distillation of where she is now as an artist. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Leah Rose with Maggie Rogers.
4: What's going on? How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm so excited to be back in the flow again. I took August and September to sort of mourn the release and sort of recover from a really big summer and things are feeling really exciting again and we're two weeks from going back on tour when i've only really played three or four shows since the pandemic started so i'm just so excited for that and in the heat of all of the planning and fun goodness band practice starts next week so i'm feeling really excited about it all
5: Excellent. So the show is called The Feral Joy Tour. And that, for me personally, I feel like that's like a high bar to hit every single night. <laughs> so how do you muster up feral joy night after night? How do you get to that place where you're just able to to give that on stage?
4: Feral joy, to me, it's not just pure happiness. So you're asking about how do I conjure that on stage? It's yeah. not like going on stage and being the happiest girl you've ever seen. Although playing music often makes me that person, it's about being present. And so much of playing shows, I really think is a practice of presence and you let the show unfold. And the thing that I love about shows is that it's really is uncontrollable. And it's something that you can't repeat because each setting, each crowd, each single person in that room makes a real difference for what that show feels like and how that show unfolds. So the pressure of conjuring something each night doesn't feel so high because on stage is the place where I feel the most like myself and the most free. And I really am able to just like let go. And I often have very little memory of being on stage because I am in such a flow other state. Yeah. So it really is just about letting the music come through and really enjoying it after not getting to do it for the last three years.
5: When did you discover that, that on stage is the place where you feel most like yourself? How old were you? Like, when did that realization come to you?
4: I think it's more that when I'm singing, I feel really present because this idea of performing or entertaining never really felt right to me. And I always felt really shy from it because it has this sort of connotation of putting something on and, when I'm singing, I just feel so connected. I mean, when you when you tell someone how you feel, you can use words to explain it, but to me, when you sing and you have that real resonant frequency, you can physically show someone how you're feeling. For me, I'm just a, a person that feels a lot of things uh, a lot of the time. And when I sing or when I'm on stage, it's a real space of expression. It's a space where I can let it out somewhere in a real constructive way and like connective way because Mm -hmm. I think when you feel that much it can often be kind of isolating but the thing that music does is it it brings people together and reminds people of their central human qualities everybody knows what it's like to feel sad or or happy you know both or have a crush or fall in love maybe or have that like first butterfly so I think when I write down my like, innermost feelings and put them out there for the world, it, it also means a lot live when other people sort of say that it resonates with them too, because it, it makes me also feel like a part of a community.
5: What happens after the shows? Like, Where does that adrenaline go? And when you're not performing regularly, is there a way that you can replicate that feeling off
4: the road? No, <laughs> there's nothing like the adrenaline from a show. But I think that there are things that can touch it. After my first tour in 2017 for my EP, Now That The Light Is Fading, I went to motorcycle school and was using motorcycles as a way to moderate my adrenaline when I was off the road. Oh. Because I found that if I fully crashed, like you're, when you're getting an, an input of adrenaline every night, you start just living on this sort of other plane. And if you can normalize that, it can be some somehow sustainable. But the second you come down, your body starts to crash and because you're exhausted, your adrenals are shot, adrenaline burns through everything you've eaten that day. It's essentially a panic response. And so it would be really, really hard if I had like a week off of tour, if I came all the way down and then had to push all the way back up. So I started looking for ways that I could, in some sort of healthy or safe way, when I'm talking about motorcycles, I'm riding, like, with full gear, helmet, pads, and, like, 30 miles an hour on a back road with no one on it. Like, I'm not in Los Angeles on a motorcycle.
5: But, like, full leather, like, head-to-toe motorcycle gear? Padding.
4: Yeah, well, protective gear. And I, I will say, like, it's not really a part of my life anymore. But when I was learning to tour, when I was like 22 to 25, it certainly was. Wow. We'll see what happens. I guess I haven't really been on the road since then, though. So we'll see what happens in this chapter. Yeah. I think it's just really nice to go do something else. Mm-hmm. To put myself in a new situation or go learn about something or be around a group of people that have absolutely nothing to do with music. It makes it like really gratifying when I come back to music and I'm like, oh, I actually really know what I'm talking about here. We're like... This is the space where I've worked really hard over a lot of years to to know this stuff. It makes me appreciate my skill set, I think. Yeah. And but it also reminds me that there is a world outside of music because I think for the people that sort of treat it like a religion and eat, sleep, breathe it every day, there is quite a bubble. And you know, one of the best things about grad school was like realizing that most of my best friends at school Listen to music like in the background when they were cooking and they didn't think about who wrote or produced it. Hmm. And I think I can, I'm so insular, like who played that guitar and what preamp did it run through? And like, it was really nice to remember that the way that other people listen to music and there's no like good or bad or hierarchy out of it. I think that for better or for worse, there is a bubble and there's a lot more happening in the world than just who produced that record or what's the top song on Spotify? Like, it's nice to sort of zoom out a little bit.
5: Mm -hmm. I read an interview with you on the Harvard Divinity site, and it said that you want to be in school forever, Mm -hmm. which is something I totally agree with. I want to be in school forever, too.
4: There's so much to learn about. Like, the world is crazy, and humans have existed for a long time. The Earth has existed for even longer. It's also worth saying, like, I don't think... That going to school is the only way to learn. You know, there are so many other ways to access information or to do that kind of study. I also really thrive in environments with structure. And I am a little bit type A and like do really well with homework. When something's due, you know, even on like a major label system, like the record is still due at a certain time and art and deadlines have this sort of like necessary push and pull. Yeah. But yeah, I just. I love school. (laughs) And it was really nice. Like I think at the end of that past life cycle, you know, I really went to school to think about touring and to think about my career and think about what it means to be an artist and to put some structure to that and really spend some like deep, deep thinking time really figuring out what I believe about music and what it means to be an artist and what does a great show look like and what is the quality of that connection and how do you bring that to people? But, but it was also like at the end of that hurt in a past life cycle, my life felt really public and it was really nice. You know, the first day of class, I'd be like, why are you here? I'd be like, well, I made a record about reincarnation. And that would be like an interesting fun fact for like four minutes. Yeah. And then the lack of knowledge that everybody collectively had about the subject we were there to learn was this amazing equalizer and I got to be just part of glass. Yeah.
5: I think it's safe to say that most people, you know, you finished, you've put out your first album or your first major label album. You've done your first tour cycle, whatever it is, all the promo, all the press marketing, most people to learn more about the business. If they were so inclined to do that, most people might study old concert footage of, you know, Mm -hmm. artists that they really admire or watch a bunch of documentaries how did you get the idea to go to Harvard Divinity School? Like why go the scholarly route?
4: That school in particular was there's was like one program in the world and I was in its first class, which was a master's of religion in public life. And it's for specifically people who don't work in religion and don't intend to, with this idea that a greater understanding of religion is a pathway to just peace in the world. And so it was like a peace and justice program in that I applied to the summer after black lives matter. Like it doesn't like the pieces line up fairly easily. And like it existed in one place in the world. And like, I was really lucky they accepted me. Mm-hmm. There is an inherent power dynamic when you're on stage, like you're, you're on a like elevated platform with a microphone. Like <laughs> it's like, and no one else has a microphone. So you're in charge. And I found that like, I naturally have always cared about human issues. Cause I'm a human And those human issues to me are, you know, gun violence or reproductive rights or equality, clean drinking water, really basic, (laughs) making sure everyone has food and shelter and access to rest. But I also find sometimes that that, like, platform, being on stage, people were asking me these sort of, like, unconventional questions about what I believed, Mm. like, what, what did I believe about immigration policy or what did I believe was the right way to like break up with someone or like these questions that you would like ask a religious figure or a political figure. And I studied like music engineering and production.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So I, I sort of realized that I like, like we, we do often look to musicians culturally as mystics sometimes for having these, these answers to these bigger questions. And I think you can really only answer for yourself. Because that's what I specialize in. Like, (laughs) maybe it's a little narcissistic, but I really specialize in being able to notice and communicate how I'm feeling with the idea that, like, the most personal is often the most universal, if you can really be honest about it. And I think it's cool, too. That was the thing that I really realized, being around these classmates who are just so stunning and brilliant and all very different. I realized the thing that I'm good at is really talking about how something feels. Hmm. And uh, luckily, (laughs) I get to do that professionally.
5: I read part of your program was to do a live performance component, and then that was your Coachella performance?
4: No. The record was nearly finished, except for one song before I went to school. Oh, okay. So school didn't impact the creation of the record at all. Got it. Because the record making feels really private and really personal and really introspective. But a lot of what I was doing was taking time to investigate the more public sides of my life or career, which are putting music out into the world and then touring it. And so I'm in this phase right now where I'm starting to integrate everything I learned in school and bring it into this tour that I'm on right now. And then... I'm just like so excited for the next record I make because it will be you know that that personal component will be influenced by all of that growth from that year but now school like became a really <laughs> it, it's interesting it became a really like fun headline for a lot of people but it was a very quiet personal process as thinking about what you believe often is right and it doesn't have a ton to do with the record directly. That makes sense. Although I will say, I will say actually maybe the thing that it does have to do with the record is while I was making Surrender, I sort of knew I was applying to grad school and knew I was going to do it. And I think a lot of Surrender I made really feeling divorced from any form of career goal. Hmm. It was really about the artistic practice and my artistic goals. And like... I'm realizing as I'm talking about this that, like, there's definitely a part of that knowing that I was about to go spend a year outside of music that I think maybe even could have empowered my creative process a little bit more to stay outside of any sort of commercial or success goals. Like, I knew I was on my way out. (laughs) And I didn't know if I'd come back. You know, that wasn't, like, set in stone. I knew I'd put the record out, but I... I don't know, I find a lot of this business to be really disheartening and I love making music, but in thinking about what I believe and what makes me happy, it's also thinking about the structures around these things that I love and whether or not it's necessary to do it commercially or not, as far as like what's gonna make me the happiest in the long run.
5: What's your favorite part of your job? Considering everything you have to do as an artist, as a public person, what's your absolute favorite part of it?
4: I love making stuff. (laughs) like it's my favorite thing in the whole world whether it's writing songs being in the studio getting to play shows i love playing other people's shows like my favorite part of performing is guesting (laughs) on on, on other people's shows because it's so much fun and so much less pressure but i'd say my favorite part is probably being in the studio it's probably the part i get to do the least yeah
0: We have to take a quick break, and then we'll be back
6: with more from Maggie Rogers and Leah Rose. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
3: Sorry,
4: sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for
5: details.
2: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
0: We're back with more from Leah Rose and Maggie Rogers.
5: When it came to starting Surrender, what was the world that you envisioned in your mind that started to come together and you started to realize, okay, this is the direction I want to go in. This is the world I want to create. How did that all start to come together for you?
4: So I started this record like I have started all the records, which is with the mood board. It was really visceral feeling, like... There was a smudgy red lipstick and a lot of leather and silver and but also a lot of images of people sort of like in the middle of some form of ecstasy or release. And that's sort of common to other, you know, mood boards or records I've had, but heard it in a past life was a lot of like people in motion. There's a lot of like dancers in motion. I like whoever's listening to this, I keep making this movement of like <laughs> I'm like I keep sort of over Zoom, like <laughs> reaching out my right hand and sort of like looking up to the sky <laughs> as I'm staying in motion, which is a little bit ridiculous. But her in the past life also felt very like airy and deserty and sort of California. Uh-huh. And I well, I was spending my first time in LA and surrender feels far earthier hmm. and maybe even a bit of fire. And it was certainly grounded in New York and in the foggy landscapes of Maine and in the UK at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios, where I made a lot of this record too. Super cool. I wanted to be really clear about what I wanted to make before I got anyone else involved. So I spent a lot of time gathering images and then also doing like research on my own, making demos, writing a bunch of songs. I wrote maybe a hundred songs for this record and even like I basically made a sort of shittier second record that'll probably never come out like I made like light on part two like fully produced and and then was like okay what else if that's the first step forward what's the next step and was able to sort of take that next artistic leap I think because I spent all that time sort of cleaning out what was ever in my brain. And then in Maine, still, where I lived for a lot of the pandemic that summer, so it would have been summer of 2020, the first song started to come that really felt like the mood board and really felt like the world. And that first song was Anywhere With You. And it was also like probably the last song we finished too because it's a long technical ride from a, like, production standpoint.
5: Since so many of your songs feel so confessional, (laughs) do you, I wonder this, like, I wonder this with comedians, like, do you have moments in your life where you're in maybe, like, a passionate moment, an intense moment with another person, and you're like, this is a song, this is a pre-chorus, like, (laughs) this is all getting recorded tonight when I'm home?
4: I don't, and I'm grateful for that, because that, I think, If I was in, like, a fight with a friend and I was like, ooh, this is going to make such a good song, I would be a (laughs) psycho. Well, it's like Jerry Seinfeld.
5: He's, like, always working on material. Like, every conversation is material. Like, nothing is personal. It's all material.
4: When I get to really feel like an artist, I am that way. But, like, feeling like an artist feels like a certain type of sunglasses I get to put on. Hmm. Where, like, I'm noticing the light or the detail or, like, the way something tastes sensuality is a big part of this record and for me it's a big part of being an artist because it's just really being tapped into the senses and the way things feel but a lot of my job i'm also like like i don't know a business person or like an email intern or like you know when you make your art your your career there's other stuff to just do yeah but also what i would say is that a lot of my music is also looking back Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's quite reflective and I find like all art is reflective but a lot of it actually physically is in the past tense and I find when I like look back like I wrote the last song for Surrender and Thanksgiving during school and I haven't written since then it's been almost a year Mm -hmm. and when I go to write again I'll sort of like look back on that empty time and pick out there are just like natural moments that stick out in your memory from the last year if you can think about them and I really think about making records as a form of archiving or cataloging.
5: So great to have that and to have a slice of yourself preserved so you can look back and yeah, see yourself. And you have it going back since when you were in high school. It's incredible.
4: Yeah, I mean, it really feels like going and visiting an old version of myself or like a childhood photo where like, you're looking at this photo and you conceptually know it's you, but it, yeah. it, it, it like is a completely different person and it doesn't look or feel anything like you. Yeah. It's really bizarre. It feels like a snake shedding a skin. Like it feels like that that sort of shell in a way.
5: You mentioned writing Light On Part 2. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember anything from that? I would love to hear what where that song went now that you have more experience and your career has progressed.
4: I remember it like it exists. It's fully produced. (laughs) I made it that summer of 2020. Like I made a whole record. Oh. Of like songs sort of like that. And then I was like, this is so boring. (laughs) Like I'm going to die if I have to go tour this for another year. Was it
5: just because it was sort of like melancholy or it wasn't reaching any new ground or what was boring about it?
4: It didn't feel new. It didn't feel challenging. Mm -hmm. It felt like strong songwriting, but it was sort of like... It was a little sweeter. Like, I, I don't know. It felt very much like the character of Maggie Rogers in Heard It in a Past Life, but it didn't actually feel like the person Maggie in, a, in the current moment I was in. Mm-hmm. And I sort of had to, like, outgrow and kill that character in order to, like, move forward and feel like myself again. So it didn't have the teeth, didn't have the smudge. Well, it's not even about the teeth or the smudge it just wasn't honest
5: Mm -hmm.
4: like it was what everybody wanted to hear from me but it wasn't how I actually felt and that's the thing that I've always sought to do in my music is tell the truth and that's something I just like I'm a very direct person that can't hide a lot of emotions (laughs) for the better or the worse but I also think that the second record is hard because people do have a real conceptual notion of who you are and you're not a product you're a person and you you grow up and you change and sort of being true to who i am or who i was when i was making this record i knew would also alienate some of the people that fell in love with the artist i was on the last record and i had to just sort of like let that go and really commit to making something that i love and i'm really proud of and that's what I've always done, but it was it was a different thing this round. Or, or it just took a couple weeks to sort of put myself in that headspace in a different way because I had to really, like, it was a bigger skin to shed because more people were holding on to that skin. It wasn't just me anymore.
5: What's your relationship with your perceived audience in your mind when you're writing songs?
4: They don't really exist because music is really for me to process my life when i get into recording or like when i'm writing with someone else maybe that's it like a lot of music i write alone and a lot of this record i got to write with kid harpoon which i just i love him so much and it's really a different thing to write with someone else because it becomes social in the same way that playing music is social and even though i'm still writing all the lyrics in the corner I have a friend to push me or there's a friend to dream with. And suddenly you get to the bridge and you're like, oh, this is such a good thing to yell with the crowd or like on stage. It'll sound like this on the record, but on stage, we can do this whole other thing and it can open up. Like you sort of get to plant these doorways in the record that, you know, like in six to eight months, you're going to get to open and the whole song is going to blast open in this other way
5: now that you've experienced more success, you're for, a little further mm-hmm. along in your career, how are you feeling about the relationship between success and happiness?
4: I think it really depends on how you define success. And For me, these days, success is happiness on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I, I think in light on, like you're talking about, that song is really about something I referenced earlier in the conversation, which is the sort of like, strange thing that happens when when you commodify your own human emotions which is what it means to be a professional artist and it's a really really bizarre thing even though I'm like so grateful to do it it, or to have the opportunity to to do it it's a it uh it made me feel really bad a lot of the time or it was really dehumanizing and I think now I just have different boundaries with it And if my success is my own happiness, like, I feel like specifically in a lot of times in the communities that I exist in, which often are New York and LA in the music world, there's this like insatiable feeling that nothing is ever enough. You know, it's this very like capitalistic forward-looking tendency of everything needs to be bigger and better and like If you sold this many tickets, it needs to be that many next time. And I think the thing that I really felt so grateful to feel a lot during the pandemic, which was such a time of pain and also reflection and grief and all this other stuff, was that I really have enough. I think you feel successful when you feel like you have enough. And I feel like I have more than enough all the time. And so once I could really define success for myself and feel like I had enough I got a lot better at saying no to stuff I don't like to do (laughs) and um, that's great yeah it's really awesome it means I might not like be the biggest pop star in all the land but I'm so much happier and um, my life and my music are certainly better for it and that looks like success to me
0: We'll be right back with the rest of Leah Rose's conversation with Maggie Rogers after a quick break.
6: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family
0: Before we jump back into Leah Rose's conversation with Maggie Rogers, let's hear Maggie's first single off her latest album, Surrender. Here's That's Where I Am.
7: I found a reason to wake up. Start a new day
2: Wish
7: we could do this forever That we made. I told you I loved you when we were just friends. You kept me waiting. And-
5: let's talk a little bit about the first song you released off the album. That's where I am. Where did that song come from? And why was that the first song that you wanted to put out in the world?
4: I think in every record, there is a song that feels like it is the like perfect distillation, the like bullseye of everything you're shooting for aesthetically. And that song is that for me. When I listen to that song, it just sounds the most like me I've ever been able to, distill into a recording and I wrote and produced that song with Kid Harpoon at at Real World it was the first song we did on our second day and it was fast I mean it was it reminded me of writing Alaska that like 10 minutes start to finish like the words just like in chronological order wrote themselves down it has every bit of my like little bit of edge Mm -hmm. it has that like 12 string guitar nostalgia for all of the like 60s, 70s music I love. It's got these big synths and sort of like wink to dance music that is also such a part of the music that I love and my musical DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just sounds like the sort of adult version of who I am and what I sound like on paper. And um, the song is like every other song I've ever wrote, like a story about some form of like love in my past, but it also is about a lot of things at once. And those are my favorite songs that like are more about a feeling than they are about one thing in particular. And they sort of, that feeling is like this big magnet that draws in all these smaller moments in my life that to to coalesce into one thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I'll say about that song is it's crazy the first time we played it live not even with the crowd, just the first time we as a band got to put it together, it felt like such a testament to how much I've grown as a songwriter. Hmm. And also with Tom too. I mean, I can't like really talk about this song without talking about our partnership. We wrote Light On together too. And I think watching us grow as a songwriting and production duo also is a part of it. The song just drives better. It's like a if if i was making a pickup truck before this is like a sports car like it's crazy with a band it just drives really really well and that's a thing when you bring a song to a band you really find that out because i remember bringing there's a song on my ep called better and it was sort of like a last track at the beginning of my career that sort of like rounded off that ep and it was has always been really hard to play with the band, and it's because it was like a bedroom pop song, and it wasn't really made mm. for a lot it was made for headphones, it wasn't made for mm-hmm. the stage, and so much of this record I specifically made to play live, and that has been the whole other like best part of it.
5: It's such an exhilarating song. It, it does something crazy to me like I listen. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking a walk the other day and I was listening to that song and it just like, Mm. I have such an emotional response to it because I can so deeply feel what you're talking about. And it's such a, it's a raw nerve. It hits a raw nerve. (laughs) I
4: was pretty raw when I was making this whole record. I actually wrote Tom a thank you note just to be like, yo, (laughs) (laughs) I know I was very intense when we were making this record and whatever needed to come out of me, like, I'm a different person now.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's great that you have someone you can be that open with. Yeah, totally. He's the best. With a song like That's Where I Am, is that, do you get closure by writing that song from that situation? Mm -hmm. Because that has to be a real situation.
4: Yeah, I get closure from writing always. It's like, once I can externalize it, it doesn't need to live inside of me anymore. And that feels really powerful
5: do you need the person to hear it? And then do you need to know the Hmm, person's reaction
4: to the song? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. It's not about anyone else. I mean, I I have always used the pronoun you Uh because I always found gender in songs to be limiting. I don't use a lot of he or she because I find gender really limiting in songs. But no, I don't care if people hear it or not. Hmm. Like, it's not really for that. If I wanted to... Tell someone something, I would just call them. <laughs> this is not for like some sort that's of very weird... mature. <laughs> it's yeah, very like, mature of you. <laughs> I, like, I told you at the beginning, I'm a really direct communicator. No, that's great. If I want someone to know something, I'd call them. I wouldn't like weird confess it in the song.
5: Oh, I would. I'd be like, this is the easiest way to get this <laughs> off my chest, and I hope that person hears it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well
5: Hey, I have some work to do.
4: Yeah. Um, we all do. <laughs>
5: would you ever consider doing like a dance album like an electronic music album
4: yeah i'm really hungry for it right now and i'm sort of actively seeking it out because there was a lot of electronic music at the beginning of my career Mm -hmm. and it feels like now what i'm really hungry for i guess we'll see how it all Mm -hmm. turns out it ends up being about how much time i have off the road like it takes me a couple weeks to come down from the road and get my brain back hmm. And because it's touring is so body heavy, wh- whereas recording is so brain heavy and also very, like, spiritual, to be completely honest. So it takes a little bit while to, like, come back down to earth and integrate. So, t- again, it depends on sort of like how much time I'm left with to get to be in the studio. But, you yeah, know, that is sort of where my brain is at, actually.
5: How would you say your taste has evolved over the course of your career?
4: my taste has evolved largely with the way technology has evolved i think because when i was growing up like i grew up with tapes and then cds and then like illegal streaming and then streaming Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of the way my taste has changed has had to do with the way technology has allowed access to music to shift Mm -hmm. other than that i've always listened to a ton of music i mean especially in college or growing up, I listened to a ton of R and B. I listened to a ton of dance music. Yeah. Like I, honestly, the last two years, I really just listened to ambient music. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sign of the times more than anything. A lot of like Daniel Lanois <laughs> instrumentals, or Andrew Wasilik or H Hunt, or John Carroll Kirby, or uh, there's this organ record I love by this guy named Callie Malone. But nice, yeah, or the Eno Brothers. But I'm Mm -hmm. like, I really just sort of do that. (laughs) How did you first
5: come to music? Was the banjo your first instrument?
4: No, my first instrument was harp. And then I played piano and guitar. But I like got really scary obsessed with classical music as a kid. Music was the only thing I ever thought about, ever. Wow. I guess when I was, when I was, when I was a kid, I also wanted to be a writer. And I wrote a lot of short stories. But that sort of like checks out. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I was always really into music. My mom told me that classical music was telling stories and that I had to, like, listen for them. And that sort of really piqued my interest. And, yeah, I'd listen and make up stories. And this idea that you could illustrate emotion without saying anything was so fascinating to me. And I still do that. Like, a lot of this record, the arrangements... You, you know, I think about a song like Symphony, where my vocal is the like steady center to all of this swirling, sort of more dance influenced instrumental that just keeps growing and growing and growing and getting more chaotic. And that song is about trying to like be the steady person for a friend who's sort of going through it. So I try and like mirror that sensibility in my work as much as possible.
5: I'm curious about this. I have a four and a half year old who just started playing the violin.
4: Oh, my God. Are you okay?
5: <laughs> it's the smallest violin, and it's <laughs> that the squeakiest so
4: squeaky. violin. Yeah.
5: <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's incredible. But how old were you when you started playing the harp? Like, that's a huge instrument. How does that happen?
4: No, there's a folk harp. Oh. So there's a small harp. Regular harps are fucking huge and yeah. have all these pedals you move by your feet to change the sharps and flats. And, like, I played that in the orchestra in high school. But when I was growing up, I played... It's called a folk harp, which is about three feet tall. And there are smaller levers on each string. So you change the sharps and flats individually okay, rather than by your feet. So you sort of prepare the instrument. It's like a prepared piano in a way. You prepare the instrument before you sit down. But I I mean, I haven't played harp since I was 18. So 10 years.
5: Do you think you'd still be able to
4: play it? I mean, I understand how it works. Mm -hmm. But like, I also like the craziest thing about becoming a professional musician is since I have done that nobody has asked me to read a piece of music so maybe I could play maybe not like (laughs) I would probably say no so nobody asks me and puts me on the spot yeah
5: (laughs) was there anybody in your family who was musical
4: no my mom like played piano after we went to bed sometimes oh and I think she played growing up and but she loved music and would always she was the one that like she'd play me Linus Morissette or Lauryn Hill or Eric nice. Badu or she loved Outcast. Yeah, um, yeah, very sick. Shout out to Alice. <laughs> she had great taste. She still does. She really does. Yeah, but yeah, other than that, like nobody really like played or worked the music in my family.
5: And when you say all you thought about was music as a little kid, like were you thinking about it technically, or were you thinking about like how it made you I was feel? Thinking about
4: it all the t- I was thinking about it all the time. <laughs> like when I got to high school, I used to DJ middle school recess and i was like obsessed with being able to hear a song on the radio and be able to tell you like all of the producer songwriters record label what year it came out like, it was really like a sense of identity also yeah. but i was like just a you know <laughs> i was the same then as i am now which is just a big nerd i was just really into it and it was really all i thought about like playing music who was playing music, thinking about music. But I was also really interested in, like, the business or what was happening. Like, you know, I'd watch VH1 Top 20 Countdown every week. Yes. And then later I got Spin or Rolling Stone and would read that cover to cover and would look at all the charts and sort of then go do my homework about, you know, what was on the college radio charts and, oh, I haven't heard of that record. So I'd go look it up or, you know, nerd stuff.
5: Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it seems like such a blessing to know exactly what you want to do so early.
4: Yeah, I'm sure it was fucking annoying (laughs) to be around. (laughs) Um, Shout out to my siblings or like anyone that was my friend during those days.
5: Are they all just like, yeah, of course she is who she is now?
4: Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember when I went to college, too, because I was studying music production but also a lot of the music business and really you know like so many people have at that time being like oh these people are all all the vers, the nerd versions of me you know from their high schools and that was special to start to find community around that i was at a wedding this past weekend and i saw some of my oldest friends from when i was like eight or nine and they were like yeah dude this is the least surprising thing (laughs) that has happened like this is a big duh
5: yeah <laughs> Yeah. how old were you when you discovered your voice and your vocal range the power of your voice
4: I have a very concrete early memory of being my sister and I shared a bathroom but it had two sinks I have no idea how old I was somewhere in between three and five maybe and I remember suddenly singing and it sounding different like I had sang you know as a kid whatever and something happened this one time I sang and I was like oh that sounds really different and oh this is a thing I can do and I remember my sister and I like having a conversation about it about like both of us being like whoa what was that like and suddenly I could sing and I didn't really figure out that I had like a big voice I I mean there were moments like I got asked to sing Aretha Franklin with the jazz band in high school and I hold it off but Hmm. I still didn't like really figure out that I or like have the confidence to say that I was like a singer honestly until touring heard it in a past life I mean that song falling water was such a massive moment for me understanding my vocal range but also then having to perform that song every night really changed the way Hmm. I learned or knew my voice because it really spans like my entire vocal range. And oftentimes we'd start the show with it. So it would just be like, I'd, I would have to really be ready for it. And I think you can hear that vocal shift in this record. I mean, when I listen back to Surrender, my voice just sounds big. And I I really like, I know how to sing now and I know my voice better and it's really fun to use that instrument.
5: How do you think about manipulating your voice while you're singing? Is that something that just is instantaneous?
4: Yeah, it's, it's not something I think about anymore. It's so much more about just trying to communicate emotion effectively.
5: So cool. It's just like another, yet another thing in your toolbox.
4: It's, it's my favorite thing. But it's also a funny thing because singing, like, at this point, I've spent so much time, you know, I took vocal lessons as a kid. I sang in choirs. I arranged for a cappella groups. I, like, sang with the jazz band. I... I've played in punk bands and folk bands and rock bands and college and DJed and I've done all this stuff and now it's just like a thing I can do. Like it feels almost like a party trick. Like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't take a lot of like, you know, I can sing. Like (laughs) in the same way that some people are double jointed. (laughs) Like it's just a thing I can do. And you have no reservations
5: about singing in front of people. You don't have any nerves or anything like that?
4: No, I, I think like, you know, I have played like Radio City and the Sydney Opera House. And from there, I know that like, this is a thing that I'm good at. (laughs) Like, not in like a cocky way, just in like a, I can sing. I'm, I'm a good singer. I know that I am a good singer and it's really nice to do something that, you know, that you can excel at. I also think I've spent a lot of time in places where I was new at things or, you know, wasn't great at things. And, um, Yeah, I know there's a lot of things in my life I'm still working on, but I know that singing is something I can do. And so I don't really stress about it.
5: So you talked about New York City influencing, in part, surrender. Do you see yourself ever going back and living in a rural place since you originally grew up in a more rural area in Mm Easton? Do you ever see yourself going back to a rural place to live full time?
4: These days, I sort of live between L.A. and Maine. And... My heart lives not in a city, even though I like love city energy, but honestly, I don't get to be home very much. And if I can be in a place that it feels like quote unquote home while I'm working and pick up a couple more days in a comfortable, familiar spot, I'll take it. So like LA does not in any way and probably never will feel like home. It's never a place I in the map I would have chosen to be, even though I've come to like love things about it or have great friends or community here. But um, I have felt way more at home in New York City. Like I don't know, I'm a New York, I'm an East Coaster. Like, mm-hmm. like I just lived in Boston for a year and like loved it. And I have, I always am like curious about like resonant places where people have resonance, mm-hmm. not residents, but resonance. Like the places mm-hmm. that really like resonate with you, like. The the way that the earth speaks, I think, honestly, because I grew up in the marshland at like 100% humidity, Oof. LA is just really dry for me. <laughs> like, I just like, I'm not a desert girl. Um, it's just a
5: different vibe, too. The people are different. It's a different, like culturally, it's very different.
4: Yeah. And it, it's amazing, too. And it brings different things out of me. But I, yeah. I, But I'm also not thinking so much about where I live because I'm so excited to be on tour that that has been the most interesting thing to feel is that like being back on a tour bus or being on tour, like that is the place I feel the most at home. It's the place that I have spent collectively the most amount of time in my adult life. And it has this magic thing where your sense of purpose on tour is so clear. Like you're with all these people who have all committed to this real strange alternative way of life and this real practice and you form a community and every bit of your day is goes towards this moment that is about being present that you're creating with the audience and bringing people together and also being a part of something bigger than yourself and that to me is i feel so lucky to call home
5: well, thank you so much. I could sit and talk to you all day. I know you have to go.
4: No, thank you. I really appreciate, really thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. And it's such a joy to be on this podcast. I'm just a really big fan.
5: Thank you. Best of luck on tour. I hope that you, you find home wherever you are. Thank and you. can't wait to see you play.
4: Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait.
0: Thanks again to Maggie Rogers. You can hear our new album, Surrender, along with all of our favorite Maggie Rogers songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, our editor Sophie Crane, Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond.
6: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batisse.
1: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.